Welcome back to the Richard Roper Podcast. Thanks to everybody who's been with us along the way these last uh, many years now. We got tons of stuff to talk about. Uh, everybody's sharing way too much information. Britney Spears is talking about all this stuff. Jada Pinkett Smith is breaking everything and lots of rules or doing all kinds of crazy shit. Uh, John Stamos has a book out. He's telling us it's just a TMI overload. And then people are making fun of Paris Hilton's baby. And then uh, a longtime radio broadcaster is threatening to retire, but now he's not going to retire. All kinds of crazy shit happening in the world of entertainment. And we're also going to have reviews of some new stuff coming your way. All of that right here on the Richard Roper podcast. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly and to compete. Did you notice how I did that? The digital landscape is changing rapidly and to compete in today's online business environment. That's right. You need an experienced partner. Since 1995, our friends at AmericanEagle.com, they have partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. Visit AmericanEagle.com and you can get started today. Okay, coming in a, a week or two into this uh, Jada Pinkett Smith stuff, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, except to say that it's part of this uh, tsunami, tsunami, if you will, of TMI that's been hitting us, this avalanche, this overload where, listen, it's nothing new for celebrities to be writing tell-all books and memoirs. They've been doing it forever and confessing things and going on reality TV. But we're getting a lot of this shit all at once here uh, in the month of October. Of course, with Jada Pinkett Smith, we found out that uh, she's been separated from Will Smith for seven years. I don't know if he knew that. She didn't consider herself his wife at the Oscars until he slapped Chris Rock. And then she said she was his wife after that, because I... I guess that's her way of saying she wanted to support him. I don't think she cares that, you know, what it did to Chris Rock. And listen, Chris Rock has done his uh, his routines about this as well. So Jada Pinkett Smith tells us in her book that she uh, dealt drugs and also the information that there was a time when Will Smith refused to stay overnight in a house of theirs because the house was haunted. So there's just a lot of bat bleep, as we say, when we can't uh, say bat shit crazy stuff going on. Jada Pinkett Smith is a talented actress. Uh, she's been in the public eye more for uh, her own, I guess, whatever it's called, it, whether it's a podcast or roundtable or whatever, and her interesting uh, decision to kind of share everything with the world. It's not my style. I, first of all, I don't have that much shit to share with you guys. But this kind of victory tour, this publicity tour, she's getting, she got a ton of national, international press. And only rarely have I seen anybody kind of pressing on her, pressing her on this and saying, you know, this is all kind of crazy stuff we're talking about here. Not every part of the book is that or not every part of her life. But I'm just saying all this, this weird stuff about and Will Smith has kind of come out and said the same thing, too, that they're he said something about other kind of this experiment in unconditional love. And to me, it sounds like if you don't want to be married, don't be married. And, and this kind of just plays into the. Uh, the narcissism, if you will, of entertainers and you know, actors, musicians, whatever the case may be, which, again, is nothing new. But this idea that, like, you know, instead of just saying, listen, 
like 50% of the marriages in America, ours ran its course and we have beautiful children and we'll always love and respect each other, but I don't want to be with him anymore. And he doesn't want to be with me anymore. It's never that simple. It's all about this. He wasn't my husband. We went to the Oscars, but you still went to the Oscars. And then he said, take my wife's name out of your mouth. And then he, there was this, this whole controversy. And then she says now, but when they left that night, now she was his wife again. But did Will know that before the slap, she wasn't his wife. Jada wasn't his wife. But after the slap, they were married again. And what does that even mean? And again, I think it's sometimes it's this, this you know, this flourishing hyperbole where she's really needs to say or want, she doesn't need to say anything. She can say anything you want, but it would be maybe clearer and a little less uh, highfalutin and pompous if you said, you know, we really haven't lived together as man and wife, but for public appearances and for the sake of whatever, we still, you know, we'll go to things together. So I went there as his friend or his supporter. I, I don't know. what It's just, it's a lot of information getting out there. And I always think about the children who are, you know, older now, but still, you know, young. And listen, they've got their own thing going on too. But man, oh man, it it's okay to not share every thought. And I don't, I don't know what's happening with Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith. I wish them the best, uh, the best. And I wish them the best if they, if they're interested in somebody named Beth, but no, I do. I mean, I have no ill will. I don't know either one of them. I've met Will Smith a few times. Uh, it's just to me, it's all new territory. When we hear about this, I'm not his wife. I was his wife. Not right now, but what does he know about that? So on we go. Now, in the meantime, Britney Spears, who, of course, uh, you know, Britney Spears, that uh, her whole story is kind of this um, classic Hollywood, you know, it, it's the stuff of Hollywood fiction about Hollywood, but it's reality, uh, you know, her being a Disney a star and then, you know, becoming this uh, teen icon and being and there's been documentaries and tons of articles and, and analyses of this, but the way she was sexualized as a as a teenager the cringe inducing interviews when she was 16, 17, 18, 19, and interviewers are asking her about her body and whether or not she's lost her virginity. And then she's had very highly publicized personal problems, high profile relationships, marriages, children. She's on the Instagram a lot now doing these crazy ass dance moves. Now she's got her book, which by the way, you know, it's a huge, you know, bestseller. People are interested in her. And I, 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 I don't think, you know, with Britney Spears and, I don't think there's anything in her that that means anything but goodwill toward others. I think she means well. I I think she is someone who constantly needs attention and also seems to be in need of better support systems throughout her life and maybe hasn't had those. Uh, but we are getting some fascinating stuff from the book. You may have heard about this. Michelle Williams, the uh, multiple Oscar-nominated uh, actress, is reading the Britney audio book. And there's one clip in particular that's gone viral because Michelle Williams takes on uh, the persona of Britney, but also Britney imitating Justin Timberlake. Let's take a listen. His band in sync was what people back then called So Pimp. They were white boys, but they loved hip-hop. To me, that's what separated them from the Backstreet Boys, who seemed very consciously to position themselves as a white group. NSYNC hung out with black artists. Sometimes I thought they tried too hard to fit in. One day, Jay and I were in New York, going to parts of town I'd never been to before. Walking our way was a guy with a huge, blinged-out medallion. He was flanked by two giant security guards. Jay got all excited and said so loud, Oh yeah, faux shiz, faux shiz, genuine, what's up, homie? After genuine walked away, Felicia did an impression of Jay. Oh yeah, faux shiz, faux shiz, genuine. 
Jay wasn't even embarrassed. He just took it and looked at her like, okay, fuck you. That's hilarious. Uh, and people are saying that Michelle Williams is somehow, I, I don't, do they have, no, I know they have awards for audiobooks, so maybe she'll get a Grammy for spoken word recording. And we see, you know, we hear a lot about Britney, you know, claiming Justin Timberlake had affairs and, and, I, and she def, definitely rightly points out that, you know, when they broke up, everybody seemed to take Justin Timberlake's side for whatever reason. He did a famous video with a Britney lookalike and she was kind of painted as, for some reason, breaking, you know, uh, this great guy's heart. And I don't know Justin Timberlake either. I think he's a very talented guy, but, you know, there was some behavior. He's only recently apologized to Janet Jackson for completely abandoning any responsibility for that infamous uh, incident at the Super Bowl where Janet Jackson, you know, saw her career derailed and nobody seemed to bring Justin Timberlake into the mix. The other interesting thing, too, is you may have seen uh, Britney's audition for The Notebook. No, I've seen Britney's movies because I had to. I did not know, you know, that she had auditioned for The Notebook. We always hear that almost every movie ever, there was somebody else originally thought of or auditioning for a role, unless it's the biggest stars in the world when they, you know, Tom Cruise isn't auditioning anymore. But even when he was coming up, he'd be up against, you know, other actors of his time for roles. So for The Notebook, uh, which is, you know, close to 20 years ago now, uh, there were a lot of actors, uh, of course, um, Rachel McAdams got the role and was wonderful in the film. But according to the casting director, Scarlett Johansson, Clara Danes, Kate Bosworth, Amy Adams, Jamie King and Mandy Moore all auditioned for the role. And this one casting director said that Britney was better than any of them. The audition, she does seem, you know, she's definitely into it. But and she also mentions that uh, Britney Spears, that she was offered a role in the Oscar winning film Chicago. Uh, that would have to be either the role that Catherine Zeta-Jones or Renee Zellweger had. I would think one of those two roles she was probably offered, which makes a lot of sense because it was a musical. Richard Gere didn't get the note that it was. Sorry, Richie. Was, you know, you get this casting sometimes, uh, you know, Russell Crowe and Les Mis, uh, uh, all those guys who were in the uh, the ABBA movies, uh, uh, Mamma Mia, where they decided that, you know, you know what we ought to get. We ought to get uh, Skarsgård and uh, Brosnan, Pierce Brosnan. I don't know. You could also get guys who sing for a living. But anyway, so we're getting a lot of stuff for Britney. And then John Stamos, who's another actor who's been around for a long time. And, you know, Stamos uh, is this incredibly good looking guy who I think wasn't taken seriously for a long time because he's so ridiculously handsome and he seemed like he had it all. And, he, you know, he was on General Hospital. He was Blackie. Remember, he was Blackie in General Hospital and then uh, Full House. But, you know, he actually has done some good work over the years because I think he was on ER for a while. He's done stuff on stage. He's drummed for the Beach Boys for a long time, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. Because, listen, Beach Boys are, are are now this oldies, oldies, oldies act. But you cannot deny the musical genius of Brian Wilson and the rest of the Beach Boys from the 60s and 70s and 80s. So at some point, they weren't going to have him be the drummer just because they could say they had John Samos as the drummer. Uh, and John, uh, who recently in recent years has gotten married and had a child, I believe, has his own memoir out now. Uh, and uh, it's getting a lot of publicity. And, he, and, you know, he's talking about different things that have happened in his life. You know, he was married to Rebecca Romaine for quite a while. She's now married to Jerry O'Connell. And I know that was a difficult period for him. And he also talks about the time he caught his then girlfriend in bed with someone. Uh, I'll preface this by saying you might not know the name Terry Copley. She was uh, she was in a few um, 
uh, TV sitcom. She was in a, a, a absolutely awful show called We Got It Made. She's a blonde. Um, we we used to say blonde bombshell. Um, who was in some horror movies and did some other, you know, fair, uh, beautiful, beautiful young woman. And apparently Stamos was dating her. Now, I love this in his uh, in his memoir. We're going to read a little bit to you. I'm no Michelle Williams, but this excerpt. So John Stamos is dating Terry Copley. He'd been on the road. He goes to her house and he says, uh, I shuffle to a car. There's a car parked in the driveway. I shuffle to the car with my stomach sinking and take a quick look inside. There's a hairbrush, keys, boxing gloves, and a half unrolled poster of my girlfriend naked, barely covered by a white sheet. I'd never seen this poster before. He then goes to the actress's guest house where he finds four feet protruding from the shabby chic floral print duvet that once kept me warm. He then realizes his girlfriend is in bed with someone and it is Tony Danza. <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, poor John. He says, my heart was beating out of my chest. My mind was racing, the room spinning. I felt like throwing up all over the white shag carpet. It was my worst nightmare this is my favorite part of this anecdote he's listening to the song tiny dancer by elton john and he then likened it to hold me closer tony danza because he was listening to tiny dancer now listen john stanley's story is his story and he, he you know to his credit he's he speaks frankly about his bouts with heavy drinking and getting into some you know some really dark places and and finding you know a different kind of peace as a as an entertainer and as a, a family man in in middle age and good for him and it's his story to tell but you know in all these cases whether it's jada pinkett smith whether it's uh britney spears or john stamos you know there's always these other people who get hit with the uh literary shrapnel if you will <laughs> it's like tony danza and i'm i'm assuming the story is true is like 70 now and maybe he doesn't care but it's also like i'm sure people are saying to him hey you're in john stamos's book what a what a what a rake you were what a bounder you were and, you know there might be a different side to the story so i always feel for the people who get mentioned thrown under various buses or you know just become like anecdotes in a book 15 or 20 or 30 years after they were involved with the person so all these books out there. I'm not, I don't read a lot of these. I used to get sent a lot of them. I, I kind of, I like kind of more of the, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, stand up comics who tell their stories or, or make, or kind of do something creative with their biographies or autobiographies or, you know, the life stories of a Paul Newman. And it's more about their work. I'm, I'm more into reading that kind of thing than these. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how long some of these books are, but it seems like a long time to be spending read about Jada Pinkett Smith's unique uh, take on the world and relationships. A couple of other things in the world of entertainment, Mad Dog Russo, uh, who I like, you know, it's not my style of radio, but I know Mike and the Mad Dog, that was a huge, huge show in New York City. One of the, I guess, pioneering shows of sports talk radio. I, I think there was an ESPN uh, 30 for 30 on those guys and I, I i i listen to mad dog and watch him on tv he's a he's a, he's a colorful character uh, mike and the mad dog when i did hear pieces of it it's very new york those of us who have worked in chicago radio we're always a little provincial if you will about our guys and all the different great radio hosts we've had here and of course i love howard stern howard stern that has been great to me and i've got to be 
you know, friendly with him over the years on Mad Dog is hilarious when he's on Howard Stern. So anyway, Mad Dog is this radio host who, when the Philadelphia Phillies were three games to two up on the Arizona Diamondbacks in the NLCS, heavily favored, uh, and the last two games are going to be the final two games, if necessary, we're going to be in Philadelphia. Mad Dog said, you know, I've been wrong on Arizona from day one, but I'd be stunned if they won game six. I'd be floored, but if they win the next two games and win this series in seven games, uh, games, I will retire on the spot. That's what Mad Dog said. And then, of course, the Diamondbacks won both of those games. Uh, to make a long story short, I've been wrong in Arizona from day one. I, I, a, I'm stunned to beat Milwaukee. I thought they'd get swept by the Dodgers. I never thought they'd even go back to Philly for a game six. Uh, I'll try it one more time. I would not be stunned if they won tonight. I would be floored. floored. And I'll say this right now. Just uh, I'll say this right now, and Bob Raceman, write it down. If they win the next two days, they win the next two games and win this series in seven games. If they win, I will I will retire on the spot. And they, in, even in the locker room, the Diamondbacks were chanting like that. Mad Dog needs to retire. And then, of course, Mad Dog, you know, wakes up and goes, fuck, what am I going to do now? I kind of want to retire. He's got more he's got more high profile gigs now, probably nationally, because he's on TV and Sirius XM and all that stuff uh, than ever before. So now he's saying, well, I, I just meant I would retire from radio, not from TV. And now he's already called into Howard's show and they're already talking about different ways he can get out of this. You know, and, and I, I know one suggestion was just do the Tom Brady thing, retire. And after a week, say you got a call and you decided, you know, you can't live without the game. But, you know, radio hosts have been doing this also for decades where they say if something happens, I'll walk, I'll streak down Main Street or I'll shave my head or I'll get a big thing in recent years for people, whether it's radio or social media or whatever the case may be. Someone will say, I'll get a tattoo of your favorite team. If my team loses, there's fantasy football leagues where if you come in last, you have to do this crazy shit. As someone who's done a lot of radio and has never done that, I stand by that policy. Uh, never, never promised to do something like retire unless you were going to retire anyway, uh, because then this happens, you know. So all the best to Mad Dog. Um, let's say I want to mention in the world of entertainment before we take a break, and then we're going to talk about some new movies and streaming stuff. But this whole thing with Paris Hilton's baby, uh, which is another, you know, kind of example of, listen, Paris Hilton has put herself out in the spotlight forever. That's how she became famous, as we know. We don't need to go through the whole history of that. I'll tell you a quick anecdote, though. I was at a, a Sundance uh, Film Festival party at the Hugo Boss House. This is more than 20 years ago, folks, right around 20 years ago. And the Hugo Boss House uh, outside of uh, Park City actually turned out to be Hugo Boss's house. So it was a ridiculous, huge house and hundreds of people there. Courtney Love was at the bar. I, uh, all kinds of madness going on. But uh, I remember writing at the time, there were two teenagers there who were really acting up and causing all kinds of trouble and had been ripping through Park City all week long. And turns out it was Paris Hilton and Nikki Hilton, who were 19 and 17 at the time and were not yet famous. And, oh, wasn't that a different time? Uh, so now cut to, you know, nearly a quarter century later, Paris Hilton still in the public spotlight for whatever reason. And I guess she's had a baby. She's got an eight-month-old son, Phoenix Barron, is the name of the child. And she's been posting. Her, her husband is Carter. I don't know who her, her Carter is. And Phoenix Barron tells me that Carter's probably not working a blue-collar job. But I don't know. And I don't care because, I'm again, I'm more fascinated sort of by the coverage of this and the reaction than I don't, you know, I wish her well. I don't care. You know, I don't listen to Paris Hilton's music, if you will. <laughs> so, um 
so they're visiting New York City. Uh, she posted some pictures of her son with her husband, and then people went after the child about the baby's head seemingly large. And I'm not going to repeat some of the comments, but there are some people really nasty, obviously anonymous trolls making fun of the baby. And, you know, this is where Paris Hilton, you have to remember, is still a human being, a fellow traveler, if you will. We're going to talk about a series called Fellow Travelers in a couple of minutes. And, you know, on her story on Instagram, uh, Paris Hilton wrote, you know, living life in the spotlight, comments are inevitable, but targeting my child or anyone else's for that matter is unacceptable. She said, this hurt my heart more deeply than words can describe. I don't post my baby. People assume I'm not a great mother. And if I do post them, there are some people who are cruel and hateful. I'm a proud working mom. My baby is perfectly healthy, adorable, and angelic. Um, I'm going to just jump in first and just say, uh, you don't have to post your children or if, whether you're famous or not. You just don't. And I respectfully disagree with Paris Hilton on this issue. She says, if I don't post my baby, people assume I'm not a great mother. No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe some people might say, why aren't you showing us pictures of your kid? And you'd say, because it's none of your happy business. And that's the end of that. So there are a lot of very, very, very famous people out there who almost never post pictures of their children. You wouldn't even know about their children. They don't go to places where the paparazzi, listen, you're going to have a picture once in a while of you coming out of the doctor's office or something, but you can do it if you want, or you can decide that you're going to take your child on your journey from the start. And, you know, my feeling is, again, maybe wait till the child is old enough. And I don't know when that is, because you'll hear from a lot of uh, famous parents whose children get into acting and they're like, well, when they were six, they really wanted to do it. And I'm like, well, when they were six, they probably wanted to eat, you know, chocolate for breakfast and drive the car, too. And you have to decide what what to say no to. Uh, but on the larger point, she is 100,000 million percent correct. The idea that anybody would make fun of a baby of someone's child and jump in with what they think are funny comments is despicable. And I would just say, and listen, we're never going to get people to stop. A certain percentage of the population are going to be assholes forever. But, you know, my feeling is if you think your trolls about Paris Hilton's eight month old baby are so clever and you're so proud of them. Why are you anonymous? In fact, why don't you just tell your friends and family and coworkers and everybody in your life that you're the person that did that? You know why you won't? Because you're ashamed of yourself. All right. Let's take a break and talk about something wonderful that everybody loves, Portillo's, and then we're going to come back with a couple of new reviews. All right, we're going to talk about Portillo's. You guys know the drill here. They're known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the famous correct Chicago ingredients, right down to that poppy seed bun. But there's so much more. They got great burgers. You can get Italian sausage, Italian beef, amazing French fries. Also, some really good salads. Don't shortchange the salads at Portillo's. And then, of course, you top it off with the legendary, the one and only, chocolate cake. I know people who order the entire cake for birthdays and other occasions, but you can also get a, a slice, which will probably last you two helpings because it's amazing. And always, of course, you keep the cake at room temperature. That's how they do it at Portillo's. That's how you want to consume it. Now there are Portillo's in many locations across the country, but you can also order online and ship it via Portillo's.com. You can find a location near you, order online, Portillo's, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com, Portillo's.com. 
All right, I want to talk about a couple of things that are available now. A couple of things, a couple of projects, some good stuff for your viewing pleasure or not. Uh, first of all, let's start off with a great film that I loved from one of my favorite directors. David Fincher has a film out called The Killer. Stick to your plan. Trust no one. Stick to the plan. Forbid empathy. Stick to the plan. Anticipate. Don't improvise. Stick to your plan. Never yield an advantage. Stick to the plan. Fight only the battle you're paid to fight. Ask yourself, what's in it for me? Stick to the players. Empathy, weakness, vulnerability. This is what it takes if you want to succeed. Simple. It's all in the execution, I think, is the tagline, which is fantastic. Uh, obviously, going all the way back through the girl with the dragon tattoo and seven and uh, gun girl and zodiac david fincher has long been fascinated with you know the very darkest side of humanity and often than the people who pursue uh, those those individuals this is uh, the story it's not a story about trying to find the killer uh this is all about a killer it's a procedural it's kind of a minimalist film but it's beautifully done it's wickedly funny actually and it's violent and shocking as hell the premise here is michael fassbender plays this gunman known as the killer in fact almost none of them except with a few exception very few of the main characters in this movie actually have names they're just known as the lawyer the expert the brute the killer so he's the killer he's a professional assassin he does a lot of voiceover narration just kind of deadpan voice kind of justifying what he does also saying that he does no uh skin in the game as we used to say no country no flag if you hire him and pay him money he doesn't ask any questions he'll just carry out the hit job and he's been doing this apparently for like 20 years and he's the best in the business they never do a movie about the seventh best killer in the business or assassin. Uh, he's in Paris. He's targeting a prey and he misses due to a circumstances I won't give away. He misses. And the fact that he missed this high profile, high security target means that he is now in jeopardy because the cleanup will probably involve wiping away all traces of the killer himself. And so it's all about what the killer does when he finally deviates from his own plan and fails at a job and now has to improvise, which is not his thing. His thing is doing things according to plan. And the team that is sent to go after him finds his romantic partner instead and, and does horrible things to her. So now he's out for revenge. So the rest of the movie is really about him exacting his revenge, finding people that he's only known through phone and burner phone stuff and all that kind of stuff. But of course, he's he's brilliant in his own sociopathic way. And the story takes us from from Paris to uh, New Orleans, Florida, Chicago, other locales. Great supporting cast. Tilda Swinton has an extended cameo near the end of the film. I don't want to oversell the film because it doesn't have you know, the gravity, the gravitas, if you will, of Seven and some of other Fincher's best work. Uh, but it is great work. And it's just he's a master. Every every frame is just beautifully shot. And there are these amazing, there's one huge extended fight sequence that's worthy of a John Wick movie, more uh, probably the biggest and most ambitious one-on-one -on -one fight that Fincher's ever filmed, very much kind of in the born identity tradition. And then, as I mentioned, like there's there's some couple of running jokes I don't want to give away. 
some really dark stuff and just really expertly blocked and choreographed and uh, incredibly done. One of the best movies of the year. It's called The Killer. Mentioned Fellow Travelers. You might remember this was a, a well-received book. It's now an eight-part showtime period piece, romantic drama. Fellow Travelers is one of those um, series where they combine the lead characters are all fictional but they're navigating the real world. And then there are other characters who are based on real world figures. In this case, story, uh, kind of the tragic love story between two men who meet in the 1950s in the political world of Washington, D.C. Dwight D. Eisenhower has just been elected president. It's 1952. And Joseph McCarthy is rising, you know, in his loathsome anti-American way he thinks he's the great America of course McCarthy McCarthyism you know he was the guy that went after everybody who was even suspected of being a communist but in addition to the red scare there was a thing known as the lavender scare and if you were suspected of being and I, I say suspected because that's the way they framed it of being gay of being lesbian of even being sympathizing to anybody who was gay and you worked in the government you would lose your job you would lose your reputation your life would be ruined there were suicides that occurred because of that so now you've got these two young men who meet each other and are drawn to each other and know that they can't be together. And it takes us all the way through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s as they try to navigate their love against the backdrop of the protests of the 60s, uh, the partying times of the 70s, the tragedy of AIDS in the 80s and the government's refusal to do enough, anywhere near enough to, to fund the fight against AIDS. Uh, beautifully shot. Uh, Matt Bomer and Jonathan Bailey are the leads and they're fantastic. Uh, Allison Williams, who is just turning in one solid, strong performance after another in the last 10 years, uh, is very good. So it's called Fellow Travelers. It's beautifully shot, uh, sometimes a little over the top with the melodramatic dialogue and the symbolism. But it is one of those things where, you know, every hour episode, you can't wait to see what happens in the in the second episode. Our country is under threat from Soviet spies, but there's another risk to national security. What is your marital status? Single, but there is a special lady in the picture. Hawk, it's stunning. Have you ever had inappropriate physical contact with another man? No. Such a damn good liar. Do you like it this way? Hawk is pretending. You're everything to me. If I was everything, you wouldn't be going where you're going. You should be careful. Everybody lies about something. We must beware of these communists and queers. These people are dangerous to this country. I look out at that city and think about what it denies us. We lie about who we sleep with. Not who we sleep with. It's who we love. Let's end with uh, a, a rare true crime documentary series on Netflix. You almost never get those. But I think this one is particularly worth mentioning, guys, because it speaks to a lot of the things we talk about here, not just reviewing things, but also the way things are covered and filtered through the media. It's a three-part series on Netflix called Get Gotti. Back in the 80s, Paul Castellano was the boss of the biggest organized crime family, the Gambino family. Big Paul Castellano. Dead. The most powerful mafia boss in America. The king is dead. It became apparent to everybody who had organized it. And that was John Gotti. John Gotti. Gotti faces multiple life sentences and up to 105 years in prison if convicted on all charges. John Gotti was going down. We had to get Gotti good. This is just not going to end well. You're a boss of the Gambino crime family. Act like one. He's a star, but behind closed doors, he's a ruthless killer. 
becoming known as the Teflon Don. Nothing stick to him. He didn't give a f about the FBI. He was like, I dare you to come get me. Talk about drama. The public ate it up. The hottest show off Broadway. He's invincible. No other way to put it. Get Gotti. But John Gotti, it's a name that still resonates more than 20 years after his death. He was the, the Dapper Don, the Teflon Don. He was the, the Don in New York City, the mafia boss, who became a superstar in the uh, 80s, in particular in New York. And what I like about this series is it, it features former associates of Gotti, but it also features members of the media who participated in the kind of glorification of this ruthless, murderous, vicious thug. And we also hear from a lot of law enforcement, F uh, former FBI, uh, district attorneys, et cetera, because they, they kept going after this guy. So John Gotti was just the, you know, he was, a, he was a killer. He literally killed people with his, with his, by his own hands and ordered multiple murders, viciously beat people, you know, ran rampant over a, ran a drug empire. He just, a, you know, an absolute scum of the earth career criminal, but because he dressed in fancy suits and he had a, you know, expensive haircut and he like, he would talk to the media the tabloid media in particular in New York, you know, they were fascinated by this guy. And there was a certain segment of the public that loved him, which is a despicable thing. And I, at least I give credit. Some of the media people from the time say, you know, we, we participated in this. We made him a star to the point where he was going to studio 54 and all this shit. And he was a mob guy and he had a number of trials. They would get him. They would have wiretaps. They'd have witnesses, but he, he kept getting out. He kept getting acquitted. Sometimes they'd compromise uh, jurors and bribe them or intimidate them. Often they'd get to the witnesses. And a lot of times the witnesses were unreliable because they were also turncoats. You know, they were uh, informants who would not do well on the stand for one reason or another, you know, the cases would not. And a lot of it was because the various law enforcement agencies were competing with each other when they should have worked with each other. That's why he ended up getting called the Teflon Don because he kept getting acquitted when it was clear he was guilty and they finally got him in 1992 he was convicted on like 13 felony counts he spent the remainder of his years in prison then he died uh, in 2002 so if you're into true crime documentaries what i admire about this one is that even though it's called get gaudy it's more about the getting of gaudy than the legend if you will of this scumbag who did horrible things and ruined lives and never should have been glorified okay that's going to do it for the latest edition of the Richard Roper Podcast. Thanks to everyone, as always, for listening. Thanks to everybody at AmericanEagle.com for your incredible support. And we will talk soon.